You're listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hi, you're listening to the Regent College Podcast. I'm Amy Anderson, filling in for Claire Perini. My guest today is Dr. Jim Houston, the Board of Governors Professor of Spiritual Theology at Regent College. Dr. Houston taught cultural and historical geography at Oxford before coming to Vancouver to serve as Regent's very first principal. He is a prolific author with a wide range of interests. His most recent publications include The Psalms as Christian Lament, co-authored with Bruce Waltke, For Christ and His Kingdom, co-authored with Bruce Heinmarsh, and A Vision for the Aging Church, co-authored with Michael Parker. Dr. Houston's enthusiasm for spiritual theology and his commitment to equipping the laity have had a profound impact on the shape of Regent College. His ongoing joyful service of the global church is inspiring to many of us. Dr. Houston, welcome today. It's a pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you, Amy. It's a privilege to be with you. Um, so I'm meeting you for the first time today. Um, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how you came to Regent College. Well, I think it's a long story because when God calls you into his kingdom service, then it has a, a long beginning. But... Um, to put it uh, simply, um, I already in the 1950s was thinking about three basic principles for the Christian in the world that we live in today. And the first principle is that um, your faith should be educated to be as intelligent as you have in your professional life. That no Christian should rely on the pastor for his faith like we rely upon the tax accountant for our taxes or the physiotherapist for the training of our body. That we ourselves should have an intelligence that is equivalent to how we've been blessed by our education. That's number one. Number two, because I was a a colleague of C.S. Lewis and met with him many times that um, I was certainly influenced to be a mere Christian. I grew up in a very fundamentalist background, but within a year of arriving at Oxford, I was actually um, consorting with uh, monks from Athos, white Russians from Paris, uh, certainly a lot of uh, devout Catholics, and of course uh, from my own Plymouth Brethren background, that was a huge sea change. So to become a mere Christian certainly took time. And the third thing was that um, I was already disenchanted having had war work in one profession as one of the founders of regional planning in Britain. I was the first geographer to be appointed to a planning commission. And um, realizing that people were scrambling to create new professional identities. Most of the planners were architects, and now they were trying to re-divert their attention to being planners. And I discovered that the School of Geography had been hijacked by naval intelligence in the war, and so they were scrambling to be academic geographers. And so all of that disenchanted me about the boomer generation that now became um, a generation of professionals. Everybody has a profession. 
And as the new universities were being created, especially in the social sciences after the war, then the boomer generation of having a professional identity has dominated Western culture ever since. I decided that my primary identity was in Christ. It wasn't in a profession. And so when people even ask me as the, at the beginning of Regent, how come that you as a geographer should be involved in a theological school, they were thinking about professional identities. And I'm afraid many of our pastors are the worst sinners because their very identity is, I'm pastor so-and-so. And so that's been perhaps the, the most difficult thing to see change in our culture. But that was the purpose of Regent, just those three things. So what was the, can you tell me about the vision that drew you here? Well, I think um, the vision that drew me here was that uh, I had, uh, and I won't go into all the details, got disenchanted with the ivory towers of Oxford. It's like climbing onto the Tibetan plateau and then it's very dull. <laughs> and so I was always looking for a challenge of something else. Yeah. And I think um, what uh, certainly helped a lot was the uh, awareness that uh, having visited uh, Vancouver from, say, 1962, uh, I began to have a friendship with some of the uh, visionaries that were here who wanted to uh, resurrect a new Bible college that had disappeared. And so they invited me to consider coming to do that. And I said, no, I'm afraid not, because it's not that I'm being academically snobbish about it, but the fact is that my life has been in, um, in Oxbridge, in an academic environment, and so what I would envisage is that we bring our Christian faith onto the academic marketplace and seek to have affiliation with a university. Well, this would not be possible in Oxford, so that's why I was prepared to leave Oxford. But at the same time, I little knew that it was impossible in the whole continent, indeed in the rest of the world, except in the four provinces of Western Canada. That in Western Canada, there was a legislative provision to have affiliated colleges in a university, and that they should have self-governance, and yet be, of course, academically equipped to be uh, comparable with the teaching on the university. That's the, that's the crown jewel of Regent. There's no other institute in the world that makes that possible except here. So that was later on that we learned to see that. Now, our own steps for what we were going to do was, of course, radically experimental. And I think the reason why it was radical was we were in a culture of radicalism. That in the um, the threat of the call of the uh, of the uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis in the spring of June 1962, shook us all to such a radical core that we now call the period afterwards postmodern. In other words, the malaise of the modern world and of the Cold War radically shook us so that uh, our young people were on the streets fighting in the campuses against the bureaucracy of the universities in Paris and 
in America in the 1960s, in the late 60s. And then there's the feminist revolt, and then there was the sexual freedom revolt. All these things were all manifestations. So the very atmosphere of, of doing something experimental in Christian education was like the Jesus people. They were prepared to go barefoot, and we were prepared to say we have to be radical Christians on the campus. So that was the beginning. Okay. So how did that manifest? What, what was radical about um, your approach? What was radical about it is that we were asking to come, for people to come here in spite of their careers. We were asking them, as I say, to become in Christ and not in their profession. That was radical. And uh, we still find it very difficult for people to understand that. It's, it's no different today from when we started, except that our young people are much more radical. I think the tech revolution has shaken them up much more than the rest of us. Um, when you're speaking about a, a spirit of radicalism then, a lot of people use the term radical now, but they tend to be referring to negative elements, so religious fundamentalism overseas, um, some of some of those movements. Do you find that the world now is as radical as it was when you started, started at Regent? Oh, I think... Uh, there's um, the, the result of being radical is that we've entered into a culture of flux where people are radical about everything about gender about identity about their future life and globalization of course has uh, made us uh, so much more uh, free to travel all over the world so, yes, we're, we're, the whole culture around us is both negatively and positively not traditional any longer. How do you see the church, um, you speak about the church expressing radicalism back when you started here. Um, do you see the church living into a radical identity in the world today? And how would you like to see that develop further? I don't think the church today with all its bureaucracy and its rabbit holes that they live in, uh, it's got anything like the transcendent perspective, sadly, that we need. And so when I'm going to Singapore shortly, I'll be giving a plenary address there that I see that the future of Christian leadership is going to lie not with our religious leaders, it's going to lie with uh, senior business uh, Christians who are senior executives they're the ones that are going to lead the future and then you may ask me why I, I am wondering why <laughs> well I think the first reason is that um, business leaders can't afford to store knowledge they have to act on the knowledge that they have immediately and so, for example, a good a tragic example of storing knowledge was when uh, Mr. Eastman at Kodak uh, refused the freedom for his uh, scientific uh, colleagues in the laboratory to move forward with the digital camera. Instead, he said, no, our future lies with... the." the knowledge of the Fuji of the Kodak film. Well, of course, Fuji came along, uh, 
and stole the secret. And so he went bankrupt and he shot himself. And uh, the early um, heresy of the church was Gnosticism. That's the first heresy that we hear recorded towards the middle of the second century. And what is is a Gnostic Christian? Someone who stores knowledge but doesn't act on it. So one of the problems that we have is that so much of our academic education, whether it's theological or, or otherwise, is much more Gnostic than we're prepared to recognize. So that's one thing. I think another thing about the flexibility of uh, global Christian leadership in business is that uh, they can't operate without trust. You have to be able to trust them. Well, even as colleagues, we sometimes question we can trust each other. And how much trust is there among different members of a communicant? It's very sad. I think a third thing that uh, is different with the business world is that your identity is not in yourself. Your identity is in the other. They're much more exercising uh, the love of neighbor as the love of myself as the other. Because a high executive has to be able to say... um, I serve uh, my customer. I serve my senior colleagues because we have to be bonded together. And so there's far greater bonding in serving the other in the business world than actually, among, I'm talking about among Christians, than I see in the life of the church. It's interesting because I would uh, many people don't see the business world as a place of trust and service. Do you think Christian business people um, inherently operate differently in that in those regards, or do you feel that business in general um, is a place that cultivates those qualities? Well, I think uh, of course you you have to have a high view of business. We're not talking about the the grubbiness of people's greed and and uh, the profit-making and all those things that do take place uh, among sinners in the marketplace, and especially when money is a kind of moral vacuum. It's inert. And so it's the attitude that you have to the money that is so important. Um, But I do think, for example, that as I have been visiting many times now Brazil, and I see that the country is bankrupt financially, I see far more hope of Christian businessmen transforming the whole culture of Brazil than I can ever expect to see it on Wall Street or in the city of London. And so when I was speaking to them this last summer about this, they said, well, why do you put such trust in Brazilian business leaders? And I said, because it's the first, it's one of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. You're bankrupt and you know it. But uh, Wall Street doesn't think itself bankrupt. Nor does the city of London think of itself as bankrupt. Nor does the church think of itself as bankrupt. So movement back towards awareness of our own poverty, you feel is essential to our movement forward. Yes. 
Um, you're known for your connection with spiritual theology. People don't always necessarily think of spiritual theology and business as being in the same realm. But I was wondering if you could speak to the way um, that your interest in spiritual theology has informed your interest in the business world. Well, I certainly have the privilege of being the first evangelical to introduce courses on spiritual theology. But the reason for doing so, I was reacting at the hypercognitive kind of academic theology that we had with the Enlightenment. And evangelicals, until quite recently, have been hypercognitive about their faith. And so I was, in a sense, uh, uh, resisting that and saying that your emotions matter more significantly than even your mind. Your mind, of course, matters, but your heart matters more. So people talk about heart and mind uh, in teaching, and there's an element of truth in that, but I was much more radical about uh, acting against... um, So I mischievously, one of my early lectures was in Deerfield, Illinois, at Trinity, and I was lecturing in front of uh, Carl Henry and Walt Kaiser, two of the great systematic theologians, and saying, how systematic does systematic theology have to be? Well, people said, what was their reaction? Well, they were asleep, so there was no reaction. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So what is systematic, what is uh, spiritual theology? Well, spiritual theology is, is no big deal. It's just simply that um, uh, that uh, we have to have a holistic interpretation of our whole life before God. Um, you spoke at the beginning of the interview about the importance of um, having a laity who have an intelligent engagement with their faith. How do you combine that intelligent engagement with this deep spiritual and experiential engagement as well? Does the one depend on the other? Yes, they're both related together, of course. And it's just simply saying that uh, God is redeeming us body, soul, and spirit. That uh, it's holistic. How has that worked out in your own life? How has your intellectual engagement with your faith and your experiential engagement with your faith, how have those come together? Well, I think they come together in that your identity is not in yourself. And if your identity is for the other, what I most profoundly seek to minister to is um, the well-being of the other. So um, I'm not an institutional man. Uh, My investment is in people's lives. So it's on a personal level. Um, As part of that investment on a personal level, I understand you've been traveling quite a bit lately. Uh, Where all have you been in the last, say, the last year? Well, ironically, it's been the the most intensely uh, extensive year of my whole life. (laughs) And uh, so I started um, by going to Hong Kong and Japan in uh, April, May, and then I was with family in Ontario in the later in the summer, but then I went to Brazil at the end of uh, 
August and early September. And uh, then I've been recently in Oxford and Cambridge and visiting my sister in Edinburgh. So I've just come back from the United Kingdom. And then I turned around to do some intensive uh, um, recording down in Portland last week. And I'm just ready to go back to Singapore on the 11th of November and back again to Hong Kong and and to Japan. Okay. Um, what what are you hoping to do in Singapore and in Japan? Many different things. I think what I hope to do in Singapore is primarily to uh, encourage, as I've done in the past, that uh, Singapore, as a Christian culture, is unique in the world. It's the equivalent of a city-state like Calvin was in in his uh, generation. And so within that city-state where they have uh, global influence and global freedom like no other country, uh, the Christians should be aroused, therefore, to see that uh, as they are essentially um, a city-state of commerce, they should see the role that I'm saying that Christian business leadership should take for changing culture in the world. So that's the message for uh, Singapore. The message in Japan is to encourage uh, young people uh, to enter into quantum physics, to establish chairs of quantum physics at the National University, and then to have um, a whole kind of infrastructure of uh, graduate fellowship groups uh, discoursing on science and faith in each of the universities of Japan. It's the same thing that we need here in Canada. Both countries need the same infrastructure. We haven't got it yet. Okay. And how did you get involved in those questions of quant- quantum physics? That's also another <laughs> uh, wide-ranging interest. Um, what drew you into that? Well, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a physicist. But what I do realize is that quantum physics is the foundation for the technological revolution. And so that's why you, you have to get to the very heart of the thing that fascinates a generation. And young people, of course, are just uh, all tech-minded. Mm-hmm. You've, uh, you're doing lots of different things. You've managed to sustain a really passionate and devoted life of faith and also of service for many years. Are there some practices that you use in your daily life to sustain your energy and also your ongoing life of faith, your own life of faith? Yes. Oh, I think I feel like Brother Lawrence. I'm always practicing the presence of the Lord, okay. that whether it's, it's stirring the porridge in the morning or um, getting up and saying, thank you, Lord, you give me another day to live. So gratitude and uh, gratitude in the presence of the Lord. And then, of course, I do have my own private devotions. Uh, but basically, my life is just in his presence all day long. That's the, that's the heart and pulse of it. And how did you come to establish that, that attitude? Many of us struggle for a long time to come into a place of that awareness. Well, I think all of us have um, real guilt about our prayer life. If I'm wanting to stir up somebody's guilt, I'll say, how is your prayer life? <laughs> and everybody will say, <laughs> it's pretty rotten. 
it's not what it should be. And so I was uh, frustrated and paralyzed as a young boy because my father was a missionary, a faith missionary in the poorest part of Spain, La Mancha. And so he was on his knees praying for his daily bread like George Muller. And so we didn't know all the agonies that he suffered in providing our breakfast. But I did know him to be always praying. And so I was paralyzed. I couldn't pray. And he was always reading his Bible. And I thought, well, how dull. I should be reading some classics instead. (laughs) And so you get these reactions when you're a child to being paralyzed by the admiration that you have for a godly parent. And that was my paralysis. So what I discovered when I wrote the book, uh, Transforming Friendship, A Guide to Pray, was that prayer is your fingerprint. It's your own relationship with the Lord. And the more books you read about prayer, the less you're likely to pray. (laughs) But start thinking about the one basic prayer is, Lord, I can't pray, so help me to pray. That's the first genuine prayer. And then after that, you begin to discover that really, that's what prayer is. It's the most intimate, uh, just a relationship that he's whispered to you, you can have with him. So I was just recording last week a whole series of uh, of uh, 20 hours of recording on the obstacles to prayer. <laughs> and of course, there are the obstacles of temperament, of personality, And you can think of the Enneagram as all the addictive forms that we have that prevent us from praying, you see. So it's a huge subject. But uh, no, I think it's just simply uh, just being, as the Lord says, go into your own closet and just ask the Lord for his presence. Have there been times in your life when you have not felt the Lord respond to that? Oh, I think that it's, you know, a child that's always asking, give me sweeties, give me this, give me that, is like the petitionary prayer we have. You know, give me this, Lord, give me that, Lord, and we petition them all the time. No, I think that uh, a deeper form of prayer is asking the Lord to sort of change our attitudes, that we don't need to ask him for anything. Mm. Um, I was speaking with one of the Regent students today and he was asking what is one not necessarily a spiritual practice but one thing that you've done every every day ideally that has sustained your life is there anything outside of this practice of of daily prayer that you have found really sustaining for you oh i think that the only two things to practice like breathing in your air breathing it out is just practicing his presence and being thankful gratitude so when people say, you know, you're 94, and uh, what's, the, what's the, the, the miracle? Well, I think it's gratitude. And, of course, always thinking about other people. Right. <laughs> um, both you and Dr. Packer have recently written books on aging within the church and how the church can both serve people who are aging and also um, provide opportunities for people who are aging to serve well. Can you tell me a little bit about what drew you into that topic and and your feelings on it? Well, many of the books that I've written, and you know I've done them over 45, uh, either books or edited, 
But I'm not a writer, so I don't see myself as a writer. So often it's happenstance that somebody said, will you do this? So I do it. And uh, so it was uh, Mike Parker, who's a psychiatrist, and he had been in Baghdad as a lieutenant colonel, and uh, he was coming out of the forces, and he um, um, decided that he would take the risk of uh, getting a postdoctoral fellowship in um, geriatric psychiatry instead of uh, youth psychiatry. Well, his fellow colonel said, the general will blast you out of his presence if you go and request that you change your whole career from one to the other. But he's a devout Christian, and he saw the realism that we're getting old, and that therefore there's a great need for books about uh, ageing. And so he didn't know that when he went in that morning to knock at the general's door, that the pastor of his mother had phoned up from North Carolina and said, your mother will burn the house down because she's keeping the stove burning when she should switch it off. Um, and the general blasted at him with military language. And who do you, what do you think I can do here in Baghdad? As if to say, get on with it yourself. And so half an hour later, Mike, trembling, knocks at the door and the general says, my dear chap, nothing is more noble the psychiatric uh, and geriatric uh, psychology or or psychiatry. So that's how he started writing the book. And then he asked me to to join him and uh, write with him. So if I was to say that one of the things that I was saying most of all in that book with him was what a waste of modern science that is giving us 20, 30 years more of life And we don't have elders, we only have seniors. And who is a senior? Someone who stirs out his life with Starbucks coffee in the morning and his only monument a lost golf ball in the afternoon. And he's now called a senior and he's going to waste 30 years of his life. And the church is no different. So how do you think we go about building mentoring relationships. I'm speaking, I'm a younger person in the church seeking wisdom from people who are older than me, but not sure how to, how to make those connections. What do you recommend to people of, of all generations in terms of building stronger relationships intergenerationally? Well, I think uh, we have to teach child theology. And what is child theology? It's reaching to the child that has been wounded in the rest of life, as I was hinting at in a previous broadcast, uh, that we are recording, that we, uh, that we need to realize that uh, um, we have to have our relational wounds healed. And when we realize the need for that, then we realize how important it is for us to be close to little children and that there's a child within us that is, by God's grace, going to be freed to be uh, freed by the sonship of Jesus Christ. But that's the process, and it's a long process. But it's a, it's a new paradigm shift. It's a new, new way of looking at things. And what would you say to um, 
is it, uh, an older person in the church who is beginning to feel that they they don't have a place in a congregation anymore how would you tell them to um, find their place in in the church in their congregation or more broadly it's not they that need to be told it's the pastors that need to be told and the pastors need to be told that their focus on youth is misdirected because it means that while they're focusing on young people and the Sunday school as the future generation, they're losing the present generation with bitterness because the old people are not being visited. The old people are not given a chance to tell the richness of their narratives. There are old people in all our churches that are rich resources of telling their experiences of life, but they've never been heard. Their voice needs to be heard. And we certainly need elders, not seniors. That is so true. <laughs> yeah. Um, you certainly are one of the elders in at Regent and in the broader church. Is What are you working on now? What are the stories that you're telling, the books that you're writing um, at this point in your life? It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I'm working with a neuroscientist, who again invited me to join him. And he is the head of the National Institute of Health in Washington, D.C. And what he is working on is um, he's discovered uh, as the top uh, expert in addiction for America that the basic source of addiction is a diversionary pleasure that uh, for a moment releases you from your fear. And he's realized that the basic emotion in the brain is located in the lower uh, thalamus. And uh, there is located the site for fear. That's the basic emotion. And everything's motivated by fear, although it may be concealed. Now, addiction then is uh, one of the manifestations of it. And of course there are bad addictions like drugs and uh, alcohol and sex, but there are good addictions. Like the Enneagram indicates how we're addicted to all sorts of kinds of personality. Uh, and so I can be addicted to being a scholar <laughs> or a writer. Right. See? So uh, he and I are writing a book on uh, uh, freedom from fear to love. So that's number one. Number two, I'm still working with Dr. Walke on volumes three and four on the Psalms commentary, so that'll keep us busy for the next year. Wonderful. And then, of course, I'm also doing a book on the comparative, on globalization, on the comparative merits of a Japanese Christian in converse with a Western Christian. Oh, interesting. And, and what the Western Christian can learn of benefits to enlarge his or her uh, reality of what it is to have a Christian life when you're seeing it from somebody else's uh, ethnic viewpoint. Um, we're getting close to the end of our time now, but I was wondering if there's anything you would like to just pass on to our listeners, something that you feel would be encouraging to them or to the church at large. Oh, I think the greatest enemy of the Christian today is tunnel vision. 
is just having such a narrow perspective of the kingdom of God. And of course, it all focuses on this basic sin of self-centeredness. So how would you recommend that we move ourselves out of that? Well, you know, the problem is that because we live in the tech age, all our questions are how. Right. <laughs> so what, give me the tools. Well, there, there are no tools for friendship. Right. <laughs> what have you... What has been instrumental in building friendship in your life? You're using the word instrumental. I know. I can't get out of it. I am, I am a product of my generation. What has been fruitful for you in building friendship? I think the value of friendship is that instead of having two eyes, bifocally, you're given... Uh, uh, two bifocal lens when you have a friend. Right. You have a broader vision of reality when you have a friend. And when you have a friend, you have someone that reminds you of our Lord and his love because he's with you. And especially the loyalty of friendship is great. So I think when I really began to understand deep friendship was when Klaus Bockmull, who was one of our professors, he was only 59 when he died, but I committed myself in the last 14 months of his life that I would visit him every afternoon. And except for three weeks when I was in Hong Kong, I spent every afternoon visiting Klaus and trying to give him a message, give him a comfort. And there was a time when I had nothing more to say and so I gave him a hazelnut and I said, you know, as uh, Julian of Norwich says, God created this little thing. Uh, God sustains this little thing because God loves the hazelnut. And he kept it under his pillow and when the pain was intense, he was cracking against his hand because he was trying to remind himself of that. And out of his death, we formed a fellowship called the Fellowship of the Hazelnut. And so two fr uh, a friend of ours then bought us two hazelnut trees in our front door in our old house so that we would have an abundant supply of hazelnuts to give to our friends. That's wonderful. Um, my last question is, uh, you and your wife, Rita, were known for many years as... Um, sources of hospitality within the Regent community. Yeah. Um, what are what are some of the joys that came out of that experience of extending um, and receiving hospitality among students, among faculty, um, and, and within this community? Well, it started when we were at Oxford when I used to entertain our students. All the students were, were my friends. And we always asked them to write at least one letter a year to keep us in touch for the rest of their lives. Many of them still do. And then we started a church plant in one of the suburbs. And so we told the students, there were Christian students that came, you'll miss your lunch in college. So we guarantee that whoever come to help us with the singing of this uh, very small church plant that was getting started, 
and support us as an audience, you'll have lunch with us. So the table grew until eventually we had to get a table tennis top uh, to sit on top of the old table. And so our children would be recruiting uh, all those who they would go around and say, have you got anywhere to go for lunch today? Well, come to us. So we would sit down at table. My wife and I had no idea who were there because the children had recruited them. Yeah. And uh, so wonderful people like, for example, um, uh, Dennis Alexander, who uh, is uh, now the uh, Faraday professor in Cambridge, I was seeing last week, uh, he uh, used to come for Sunday lunch and then cut our lawn during the week. And his brother, uh, David, who was a publisher, he did the same. And we had a wonderful group of young Czechs who in the Cold War were with us and they were devout Christians and they inspired me very much for the courage that I would need to come to Regent. It was their courage that helped me to come here. But uh, they brought with them uh, a doctorate, uh, a lady who was doing a doctorate in economic planning in Oxford. She was a communist from the Central Communist Party in Prague. And so years later, when I knew she'd become a Christian, she wasn't a Christian then, I said, and what was it that made you a Christian, brought you to Christ? Oh, she says, it was just sitting at your table. She said, I'd never sat at a table like that before. And uh, years later, she became the secretary to the bishop of Slovakia, now a, a devout Christian. So sitting at a table together, I never know what it'll do. Thanks so much for sitting at our table today. It has been a real joy to have you here. Um, and thank you to everyone who's been listening to this podcast over these past few months. If you're enjoying it or if you have any feedback, please leave us a rating and review us on iTunes. This is a great way for us to get the podcast featured in the iTunes store and to spread the word about this little project and other excellent podcasts uh, with people like Dr. Houston. If you're only just hearing about Regent College through this podcast, you can find out all kinds of information about who we are, what we do, and maybe how to come and join us at www.regent-college.edu. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for listening to Regent College Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you'd like to hear more content like this, you can find lectures, conferences, and entire courses at regentaudio.com. And to find out more information on Regent College's degrees and upcoming events, go to regent-college.edu.